Good morning. God always does everything for his glory. Do you believe that? God always does everything for his glory. Sometimes, for the sake of his name, God deals with us as his creation according to his justice, which should cause you to fear and lead you to repentance if you have not turned from your sin and sought the forgiveness that can only be found in Christ. Sometimes, for the sake of his name, God deals with us according to his grace, which should cause you to have an unshakable joy and peace if you live by faith in Christ who redeemed you from the wrath of God. Because for the believer, whenever God works for his glory, it results in your ultimate good. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? I'm not asking if you affirm the truth that God works everything according to his glory, which for the believer results in your ultimate good and for the unbeliever in your ultimate demise. I'm asking if your life and your responses to the challenges of life reflect the reality that this is really what you believe. In my own life, I understand what it's like to affirm that reality that God works all things for his glory. And yet when the challenges of life hit, it's so easy to think, well, God is not really working for my good right now. He's not really understanding what it means to glorify himself. He's not really understanding what is truly just in this situation or what grace really looks like. Well, this is what we all do. This is really what humans have always done. We looked at the world through the lens of our own sense of goodness, our own sense of justice, our own sense of fairness. And on that base, we set up an, an idol of how we think God should act in any given situation. And when he does not act in the way we think he should act, we say, well, God must not really be God. After all, he's fallen short of our glory. This is idolatry. And we must repent of it whenever we see it in our own lives. As we process this last year of 2018 and as we anticipate this next year of what God will do in our lives, I can think of nothing better for us than to fix in our minds the truth that God always does everything for his glory. At times, for the sake of his name, he deals with us according to his justice, and at times, for the sake of his name, he deals with us according to his grace. And to do that, I want you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel is toward the end of the Old Testament, the last of the major or longer prophets. And while you're turning there, let me express my gratitude to Pastor Tom for giving me this opportunity to minister the word. He had asked me to do this even before we moved here a little over a month ago, and even before that, I had this text as the next one that I wanted to preach when I had opportunity, and so I trust that in the providence of God, preaching this text on this day will be encouraging to us all. Well, Ezekiel was a prophet of the southern tribes of Israel, those who were exiled already to Babylon prior to the sacking of Jerusalem. This book is really divided into three main sections. The first section is Ezekiel in Babylon telling those Jews who were in Babylon that God's wrath is going to be poured out on their nation by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. In the second section, Ezekiel prophesies that the very nations that God uses to pour out his wrath on Israel, themselves will experience the wrath of God for their wickedness. And then this final section looks forward to the restoration of Israel in their land with a new city and a new temple restored to, to be obedient to the Lord. And chapter 36 falls into that final section and in some ways is the most thorough promise 
of restoration. This is where God promises what we call the new covenant, which is also described in Jeremiah 31. But as we'll see in this section, the promises that God makes regarding the new covenant are are really a secondary theme. The primary theme, the primary message that God wants to communicate to the people through Ezekiel is the reason why God is making the new covenant. The reason that he is going to restore the people of Israel. So as I read this text, see if you can identify what that reason is. Follow along as I read Ezekiel 36, verses 16 to 38. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her, in her impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols." Also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name. Because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where they went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh." I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it. I will not bring famine on you. I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field so that you will not receive again the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. It is, excuse me, I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord Yahweh. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord Yahweh on the On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places to be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of being a desolation in the sight of everyone who passes by. They will say this desolate land has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste, desolate, and ruined cities are fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left around you will know that I, Yahweh, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, Yahweh, have spoken and will do it. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So will the waste places be filled with flocks of men. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Did you get it? God is going to restore Israel for the sake of his what? For the sake of his name. This text obviously is focused on the nation of Israel, but through this text, we're going to see that God always does everything for the sake of his name. Sometimes for the sake of his name, he deals with us according to his justice. Uh, 
which should be a cause for fear and repentance if you have not turned from your sin and believed on Christ. And sometimes for the sake of his name, he deals with us according to his grace, which should cause believers to have unshakable joy and peace. Because when God acts for the sake of his glory, it results in your ultimate good. Let's start by looking at this passage and considering how God sometimes works for the sake of his name according to his justice. We see this in verses 16 and 19. Let me read that portion again. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. I also scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands according to their ways and their deeds. I judged them. God always does everything for the sake of his name. And here we see that God sometimes deals with us according to his justice. In the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, we learn that God not only created all things, but he chose to communicate himself, to reveal himself to his creation. Adam and Eve rebelled against God and cast the human race into a state of sinfulness. And from then on, humanity has always been at war with God. But God is a redeemer. And he has always had a remnant, a a small group of people that he chose on the earth to represent him and to be a light to the world. From Adam through, excuse me, from Abel through Abram, God's witnesses were individuals, but he chose to make a nation through Abram that would stand alone in this world as God's chosen people. Not that they would be the only people God saved, but they would be the chosen people through whom he would redeem the world. Israel was blessed beyond measure. In Romans 9, Paul says that to Israel belonged the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. And chief among the promises that the Lord gave to Israel is that through them the Messiah would be born, the one who would crush the head of the serpent and remove the scourge of sin and death. But these privileges afforded to Israel did not come without stipulations. If they were to be the people of Yahweh, they must follow his commands. They must live by his standards. They must live before the watching eyes of the world as those who represented the holy and righteous God. You see, God is sovereign, God is transcendent, and God is holy. He is not like the gods of the nations. He is not made of metal and wood. He, is not, he does not have eyes but cannot see, and ears but cannot hear, and hands that cannot do anything, and feet that cannot move. He does not have a mouth but cannot speak. No, he is a spirit And so he does not have eyes, but he can see everything. He does not have ears, but he can hear everything. He does not have a mouth, but he speaks. He does not have hands, but he can do all things. He doesn't have feet, but he can be everywhere. And as the holy and righteous sovereign, he demands that his subjects be holy and righteous as well. And in his law, he contrasts the wickedness of the nations with his own holiness. Israel was not to engage in immorality like the nations. Israel was not to sacrifice their babies to Molech like the nations. They were to value human life unlike the nations. They were not to make idols of wood and stone like the nations. They were not to worship creation like the nations. And Yahweh promised that as they followed his commands and lived according to his law, he would bless them, he would make them fruitful and prosperous, and they would be abounding in joy and satisfaction. And Yahweh promised that if they turned away from him and lived like the nations, 
they would be judged according to their ways and according to their deeds. You see, God is a righteous judge, is he not? God is not arbitrary in his punishment. No one can ever say, I didn't know that was about to happen. I didn't know those were the consequences. Not at all. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God lists out, here are the consequences of what I'm going to do if you disobey my law. And these consequences are not minimums and maximums of what God might do if you disobey. No, these are explicit and specific punishments that would be brought down on the nation if they turned away from him. Well, you know that Israel eventually did turn away from Yahweh. The truth is they never really followed him fully at any point in their history. They acted like the nations, and this passage hints at some of the ways that they became like the nations. You can look at verse 17 where he says, when they were living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. And then verse 18 I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. Earlier in Ezekiel, the Lord gets even more specific. Israel had uh, betrayed the Sabbath. They didn't follow the Sabbaths of God, either the weekly Sabbath where they were supposed to rest and worship, the seven-year Sabbath where they were supposed to give rest to the land, They defiled the land by littering it with idols. They set up altars on the hilltops and turned trees into shrines. They crafted idols and kept them in their homes. And perhaps worst of all, they shed blood. That's not a reference to murder, though they did murder the prophets. That's a reference to child sacrifice. They burned their babies to idols. Make no mistake, Israel was not just half-hearted in their following of God's law. No, they spurned the law of God and ran full force into the wickedness and idolatry of the nations. And after many centuries of showing extreme patience and grace, God finally chose to pour out his full fury on them. Now understand that God's wrath is not uncontrolled rage, not at all. What God did was he took out that list that he had made in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 28 and he brought it all to pass to the final detail. Look at verse 18 and it says, I poured out my wrath on them. Verse 19, also I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed throughout the lands. In fact, when you read the promises, the promised consequences in Deuteronomy 28, and you compare that to the experience of Israel in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and the prophets, the conclusion is God is faithful to his promises. Again, I say that God is a righteous judge, and while he is patient, he will always punish sin according to his predetermined and pre-revealed standard. It's always been this way. It still is this way. The, the suffering you and I experience in this life is the, is the result of God being faithful to his promises to judge sin in the Garden of Eden. God gave one prohibition to Adam. He said, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And he gave one consequence of what would happen if he did. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And die they did. Keep your finger here and turn to Genesis chapter 5. If you're doing a Bible reading plan, you've probably passed this already uh, in the last week. But I want to point out something that that may not have stuck out to you. Genesis chapter 5 is a genealogy. There's no purposeless, meaningless genealogy. This goes from Adam to Noah. But the purpose of this genealogy is not really, or primarily at least, to tell us what is that lineage from Adam to Noah. It is to point out that God is faithful to his promise to judge sin. Look at verse 5. 
So all the days of Adam lived, that Adam lived, were 930 years. And he what? And he died. Verse 8. So all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he what? And he died. Verse 11. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years. And he died. Verse 14. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years. And he died. Verse 17. So all the days of Mahalalel were 800 year, 895 years, and he died. Verse 20, so all the days of Jared were, Jared were 962 years, and he died. And on it goes. Enoch is the only exception to the rule that 100% of those who are conceived in the womb will die. Why do we die? Because God is faithful to his promises, even to his promise to judge sin. But in the garden, God not only promised death as the punishment for sin, after they sinned, God cursed Eve with increased pain in childbirth and cursed Adam with painful toil. He declared that unlike their experience in the garden, whenever Eve would conceive and whenever man would work, both man and woman in life, in marriage, in a relationship, their life would be filled with difficulty and pain and conflict until the day of their death. And so it is today. God is faithful to his promise to judge sin. Every time a woman experiences pain and difficulty in pregnancy and childbirth, she experiences the consequences of sin. Every time a man finds his work to be laborious and a struggle, he experiences the consequences of of sin. Every time there's conflict in marriage or relationship, we are experiencing the consequences of sin. Every time we're hit with sickness or pain or disease or virus or cancer, we are experiencing the faithfulness of God to judge sin. My friends, God is glorified when he upholds his righteous standards and fulfills his promises. In Ezekiel 39, God declares that judgment is a manifestation of his glory. He says this, and I will set my glory among the nations. So he's about to explain what his glory is. And all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which have, I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know, will know that I am Yahweh their God from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hands of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I dealt with them and I hid my face from them. The judgment of God is his glory. It is his glorious justice on display. God wants all mankind to know that God is not like other gods that men and demons can invent who can make threats but not carry them out. The one true and living God alone is righteous in his judgments and he is faithful to carry them out. He does not let us think that his law or his his commandments or suggestions or his law guidelines. He is not like men who may make promises but are unable to keep them. No, God glorifies himself by demonstrating that he is a righteous judge. My friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, do you see why you should fear in light of the justice of God? Do not think that you can escape the judgment of God. He does not grade on a curve and he doesn't overlook offenses. If you have sinned against God, and we all have, then you will certainly be judged. If you think that your sin is not so bad and your judgment won't be very great, you are deceived. You are blind to your own depravity. For we have all sinned against an infinite holy God and we are all due the infinite wrath of God. Do not wait another moment. Let this be the day that you turn from your sin and experience the forgiveness of Christ. God himself calls out to you in Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. God always does everything for his glory. As we've seen for the sake of his name, he deals with 
us according to his justice. But now let us consider and find hope in that for the sake of his name, he deals with us also according to his grace. Look back at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 20 to 38. Obviously, is a long passage, so we'll just take it one section at a time. Look at verses 20 and 21. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they have come out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. Upon being cast out of the land, Israel profaned the holy name of Yahweh. And how did they do that? Because it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they have come out of his land. Well, what does what the nation said about Israel have to do with profaning God's name? And what on earth does that even mean anyway? Well, in order to not understand this, we have to connect some biblical dots. When God refers to his name as holy, he doesn't mean pure, uh, undefiled, good, moral, righteous. Holiness is not fundamentally a moral category or moral attribute. To be holy fundamentally means to be separate, to be distinct, to be set apart. In religious context, it means to be reserved for sacred purposes. If you have fine china in your home, it is holy in the sense that it is set apart for special occasions. And so to profane something that is holy is to treat it as unholy to treat it as common, to treat it as normal, just like anything else. In harsher terms, you could say it's to offend, to degrade, to desecrate. Again, the idea is to treat it as common. It is like having guests over to watch a football game and using your fine china to serve the snacks instead of paper plates. It doesn't elevate the event, it desecrates the china, right ladies? So when God says they profaned his holy name, he means that instead of exalting his name, which is his character, they dragged his name through the mud. They portrayed the character and the power of God as being no different than any other God. They made God out to be like all the other gods of the nations that Babylon had conquered. We see how this happens in a passage like Isaiah 36, you don't need to turn there, but decades before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, the, Syrian, the Assyrians were knocking on the door. They had come through the land, the northern area of, of Israel. They had already deported the northern tribes of Israel, and now they were standing at the doorstep of Jerusalem ready to take that down as well. In verse 14 of Ezekiel, excuse me, Isaiah 36 we hear the words of Rabshakeh, the leader of the Assyrian army. He says, Thus says the king, the king of Assyria, Do not let Hezekiah, the king of Judah, deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in Yahweh, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. He goes on to say, Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you, saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any one of the gods of the nations delivered his land from the, from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath? Where are the gods of Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? And when have they delivered Samaria from my hand? Who among the gods of these lands has delivered their land from my hand? That Yahweh would deliver Jerusalem from my hand. You see, in that day, when you conquered a land and a people... You weren't just conquering them. You were conquering their God. It's not that your army was better than their army. Their generals were better than your generals. It was your God was stronger than their God. So Rabshakeh taunts Jerusalem saying, he's already conquered all the gods around them. Who's Yahweh that he can stand in my way? Well, that time Yahweh spared Jerusalem destroyed the Assyrian army, and eventually Babylon became the new world power. So when the Lord poured out his wrath on Jerusalem and allowed the Babylonians to destroy the city, the temple, and the land, it was said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, yet they have come out of his land. 
In other words, the Babylonians and the surrounding nations said, Yahweh must not be all that powerful. He must not be as great as they say he is. Now, someone might say, well, isn't that God's fault? Didn't he know that this is the conclusion they were going to come to? No, it's not God's fault. God is never at fault when men come to the wrong conclusions about his actions. We may not understand what God is doing at any given moment, but we must never profane the name of God to conclude that he is anything less than what he has revealed him to be, and that is holy and powerful and righteous and gracious. When the nations were saying these things about Yahweh, the Jews were supposed to stand up and say, no, that's not true. Ezekiel 12, verse 16 says, But I will spare a few of them from the sword, the famine, and the pestilence, that they may tell of their abominations among the nations where they go and may know that I am Yahweh. In other words, the Jews were supposed to tell the the nations, it's not that your God was more powerful than Yahweh, it's that we were wicked and we spurned Yahweh and so he is judging us. But they didn't do that. They left the nations in ignorance about why God did what he did. This problem exists today as well, doesn't it? The atheist's favorite argument against God is, well, how can a a good God let bad things happen to good, innocent people? When we hear people say things like that, we need to stand up and say, no, that's not true. That is the wrong question because the reality is there are no innocent people. We have all sinned against God and are due the wrath that he has poured out. The question is, how can a just God let anyone live past childhood? Well, whether or not the Jews or anyone else stands up for God, God promises to correct this misconception. You see, God is more concerned about his reputation than we can ever be. Exodus thirty-four fourteen, the Lord says, For you shall not worship any other God, For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. For us, jealousy usually has negative connotations, but there there are good forms of jealousy. A wife is right to have jealousy for her husband. A husband is right to have jealousy for his wife. And if anyone tries to step into that sacred union, it is good and right to act out of righteous jealousy and protect that union. In the case of God, as the sovereign and supreme God of the universe who created all things, he alone is worthy to be worshipped. He alone is worthy to be served. And in worshipping him alone, we experience the height of joy and satisfaction and peace because he alone is the source of all of those things. And when we worship false gods, we're not only profaning the name of God, but we're depriving ourselves of all of what God has to offer as we worship him. So God is jealous for his sake and for our sake that his name would be exalted and worshiped and served. And because the nations have always desecrated the name of God, he promises to act. God declares that he is going to act, that he may be glorified. Look at verses 22 and 23. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned, in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. What God does, he does so that you might know who he is, that he alone is Yahweh. He wants you to know that he is holy, that he is unlike any other God. He's not like any other God you've known or heard of. He's not like Baal or Asherah or Molech. He's not like Zeus or Hermes or Artemis. He's not like Allah or Vishnu or Shiva. He's not like the gods of the pantheists and the polytheists. He's not like the divine conceptions of the Buddhists 
and the New Agers. He is Yahweh, creator and sustainer of all. And he is just, yes, he is just, but he is full of compassion and mercy and grace. He is a redeemer. How will he prove this to the world? We'll look at verses 24 to 38. There's obviously a lot here, and we don't have time to to go through it in detail, but this is the new covenant. As Gentile Christians, we often think of the new covenant as being that which uh, is our salvation in Christ. But that's not really true. The new covenant is this list of promises that God made to the nation of Israel. The salvation that we experience is only the deposit the down payment, the beginning, the initiation of what God will do for the nation of Israel. But this here, his promises to Israel is the new covenant. In Luke 22, when Jesus says about these elements that we're about to partake, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, he didn't mean that these promises which God made to Israel were all of a sudden null and void. The first few are just the initiation. He was inaugurating the new covenant, not completing it. Listen, to those who say that God, excuse me, that Israel forfeited the promises of God because of their disobedience, let me remind you that grace, by definition, can only exist once we've forfeited it. God could not be more clear in this passage. Not a single of these promises are due to Israel because they deserve it. And there's not a single Gentile who deserves to benefit from Israel's sin. It's all of grace. I mean, by this point in Israel's history, they've already experienced the full rejection of God. Israel and Judah have been exiled. The the city has been destroyed. The temple, God left the temple long ago. There's hardly anyone left in the land. Really, the nation of Israel is decimated. In Joshua 21, after Israel had conquered the land, Joshua says this, not one of the good promises that Yahweh made failed to come to pass. Not one of the good promises. By this point in Ezekiel, we could rightly say not one of the promises of destruction that God made to Israel has failed to come to pass. There's nothing left for God to do in his promises to Israel to destroy them for their disobedience. And yet, when the people of Israel were on the verge of extinction, and deservedly so, God determines that he is going to demonstrate to the world that he is not like other gods. Judgment is not going to be his last word. One author writes, wrath is a true word, a right word, and sometimes an inevitable word. But God would not have it to be his last word. That honor is reserved for his unfailing love. All of the promises that we see here and elsewhere in Scripture are an international declaration of the holiness, the greatness, and the power of God. But more than that, they put on display for all to see the very character of God that he revealed to Moses. All the way back in Exodus 34. Remember Moses said, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to get the full breadth of who you are. And here's what God's revealed to him. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. We see all of those characteristics portrayed right here in Ezekiel 36. We've seen that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. He does deal with us according to his justice. But in these promises of the new covenant, we see God's compassion, God's forgiveness, God's grace on display. For the sake of his name, God promises to bless them in physical ways. We read what those were. Specifically, he will restore them to the land. 
and they will be in the land to such a degree that they will experience productivity and obedience and joy. The land will be fruitful and produce abundantly. The population will grow to overflowing. They will no longer experience famine or desolation or destruction. This will set Yahweh apart because no other God has done this. Throughout history, the the consistent reality is once a people were conquered and dispersed, they ceased to exist. This is why we no longer have Jebusites and Amorites, Girgashites, Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites. We don't have Assyrians or Babylonians or Romans. Once these people, groups, and nations were conquered, they disappeared, never to be reconstituted again. The only people group, think about this, the only people group still in existence today from ancient times is Israel. And when you consider the smallness of their nation and the many times that they've been conquered, it is nothing short of a gracious work of God that they are in the land now and one day will enjoy peace and safety and prosperity. For the sake of his name, he also to, uh, to bless them in spiritual ways. He promises to cleanse them from their idolatry. He will forgive their sin, which they committed over and over and over again. He will purify them for their abominations. Again, what other God is known to do this? What other religion offers this kind of forgiveness and cleansing? All all of the gods invented by men and demons require that if you want to experience some kind of forgiveness or mercy from them, you got to clean yourself up first. You need to rid your life of everything that doesn't please them. And then if you have any smudges left, maybe they'll deal with that too. Not our God. Our God is merciful and gracious. And he promises to purify and cleanse us even when we're wallowing in the mud. Well, Yahweh also proves himself holy and demonstrates his grace by promising his people a new heart and a new spirit that they may obey him. Everything that God promises is remarkable and demonstrates his greatness above all gods, but this really outdoes them all. You see, God not only promises to forgive and cleanse them, he promises to transform them into a people who will actually worship and serve him as he has called them to do. For thousands of years, the chosen people of God were given all of the information that they needed of how they were to live for God, but that, o- that information only served to condemn them. They lacked the fundamental capacity to serve the Lord rightly. And even Joshua, at the end of his ministry, warned them, you will not be able to serve the Lord, he said, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. See, Joshua knew that what God required, no one could accomplish. God never expected that Israel was going to follow the law as they ought. Instead, the law was to be a constant reminder that they were utterly dependent on God. They were not to try to live in the flesh. They were to live by faith, knowing that one day God would send the Messiah to rescue them from their sin. The law, the the temple, the sacrifices, all were hints and shadows of the full reality which is here revealed in the new covenant. Who has ever heard of a God who gives commands and then when his followers break those commands, forgives them and cleanses them and then promises, I'm going to transform you, I'm going to change you so that you will want to follow me, so that you will be able to follow me. There is no God like Yahweh. And again, he will do this not because Israel deserves it, not because they are worthy of it, and certainly not because God is obligated to do it. No, he does it so that all may know that he is Yahweh. Look again at verse 32. I am not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord Yahweh, Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Verse 36. Then the nations that are left around you will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which was desolate. I, Yahweh, have spoken and will do it. The end of verse 38. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. It's 
all for the sake of his name. It's all to put his glorious character on display. It's all so that he might be praised and worshiped and glorified for who he is. In Isaiah, the Lord says, for my own sake, for my own sake, he repeats himself, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will give to no other. This truth that God is to be gracious and forgiving for the sake of his name begs a question that really this text doesn't give an answer to, but is answered by the table set before us. And that is how can God be merciful and gracious and forgiving while at the same time being just? Because there is not a good judge who will just let a sinner go free. Lawbreakers must be judged. Well, God can be both just and the justifier for one reason. The glory of God's justice and the glory of God's grace are both put on display in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when God promises to be gracious and forgiving, he isn't being unjust. He hasn't just decided to stop punishing sin. The reason he can forgive sin while still being just is because he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be our representative. And he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. And he was put to death so that those who trust in him would have their sins forgiven, such that in the same way that all of those who are born after Adam die, all who trust in Christ will live. And as the infinite God wrapped in human flesh, Jesus experienced the full wrath of the Father on the cross that was coming to those who would believe on him. And when we turn from, a host, from our hostility to God and confess our sin, he is faithful and just to wash our sin away on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. And then he takes all of that righteousness that was on Christ and he puts it in our account. He treats Christ as if Christ lived our life and he treats us as if we lived Christ's life. Those who die in their rebellion and sin get justice. Those who die having put their faith in Christ receive grace. No one gets injustice. So turn. Turn from your sin and self-centered ways of thinking and living. Stop trying to think that you yourself can do something that would make yourself pleasing to God. As long as you look to yourself, you will die. But look to Christ and you will live. God always does everything for the sake of his glory. If you are a Christian... For the sake of his name, he has granted you forgiveness. For the sake of his name, he has reconciled you, his enemy to himself. To put his glory on display, he has given you an endless stream of blessings that are undeserved. Do you know that God causes all things to work together for good? For those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. It doesn't say that everything is good. It doesn't say that everything feels good. It says that everything comes together for a good purpose, and that is to make us more like Christ, which results in the ultimate purpose of bringing glory to Christ. If you are a Christian, do not fear 2019. There is nothing that can disrupt God's good purposes in your life. Remember that these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not freely give us all things? 
Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, along with Paul, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's bow before this God. What a great and holy God you are. That you are just, you punish sin. You don't allow us to be confused about what kind of God you are. You don't leave us wondering what would happen if we would turn away from you. But you have made known to us what are the consequences of sin What are the punishments for our iniquities? What happens when we turn away from you? And so I pray that if there would be any in this room, dear God, who are still in their rebellion, that you would break down their stony heart, that you would give them a new heart and a new spirit, that they might recognize their wickedness and they would flee to Christ for forgiveness. And Lord God, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God, unlike any other God, that you deal with us according to your grace. And even through the pain and the toil and the difficulty of life, you pour out your goodness toward us. In this coming year, as we face uncertainty, as we face a lack of clarity, as we face confusion, As we face prosperity and joy, let us not lose sight of this fact that you are a glorious God and you alone are worthy to be worshiped. It's in Christ's name and for his sake that we pray. Amen.